Would you grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 21? Because regardless of where we are, whether we're in the sanctuary or the park or down here in the fellowship hall, we're still in the book of Matthew because it's been three years and we're not done yet. So um, we're in Matthew 21. God willing, we're going to wrap this series up on Easter Sunday. How about that? So we're moving forward. We're almost there. I got a little cheer over there. That's good. Yeah, that's, I, I agree. I, I'm ready. I'm with you. Um, so what you're going to find in uh, Matthew right now, this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom, is that uh, everything's going to slow down a little bit. In Matthew's uh, narrative, he's going to make sure that we're focused in on some very specific things. And uh, for me, what I felt like is we have 20 chapters of Matthew pointing the finger at the Pharisees, stepping into healings, teaching the kingdom in a variety of different ways uh, to Jews, to Gentiles. But as we hit Matthew 21 and following, I feel like the finger starts to be pointed a little closer to home. I, I think there's a bit more of a, a focus on my own heart that I feel, and you may feel the same way as we dive in. You may not feel that right away, but as we jump in today, I'm going to trust that you're so just taken by the beauty of the facility around us that you won't notice that I'm yelling at you as much as I can. So, so uh, anyway, we're going we're gonna to dive through this and, and see where we go. Um, so... Let's start here. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot of people in the world around us right now who have a lot of opinions on a lot of things. Anybody? Did you, have you noticed that? If you haven't noticed that, it's because you're not on social media and congratulations, you're probably mentally healthier than the rest of us. Um, it, it's, there's all of these ideas floating around the world. Everybody has these deeply ingrained beliefs about all kinds of different things. It seems that we are finding new ways to disagree about all kinds of stuff. But what's fascinating is that in all of those opinions and all of that disagreement, we're thinking less than we've ever thought before. Now, here's what I mean by that. Not that we're ignorant, but that we're ceasing to think through what we believe. In this networked, connected world... We're having a revival of what's called tribalism, where there's a, a certain group of people who we identify with who believe a certain thing, and so we begin to believe the thing that they believe without ever having thought through what we really believe. The social pressures around us, the people who think like we'd like to think, become the way that we think. And I know that's true because I'll talk to people, and by the time I get to the second or third question about the belief that they hold, I realize they've never thought through those questions. They're just simply flowing in line with what a group of people around them believe. So what's it look like for us to think? There's a little book by Alan Jacobs called How to Think, an appropriate title, right? And he talks about the emotional and social pressures that are on us. Listen to what Jacobs says. Anyone who claims not to be shaped by such forces is almost certainly self-deceived. Human beings are not built to be indifferent to the waves and pulses of their social world. For most of us, the question is whether we have even the slightest reluctance to drift along with the flow. The person who genuinely wants to think will have to develop strategies for recognizing the subtlest of social pressures, confronting the pull of the in-group, and disgust for the out-group. The person who wants to think will have to practice patience and master fear. Now think about that last sentence. The person who wants to think will have to be patient 
and courageous. We have to be willing to sort through issues and be courageous enough to step in the face of a flow that may be going a different direction or take a more subtle or nuanced view of something that has become a black and white issue in the world around us. What's fascinating is while that's a, 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 an acute issue in 2020, that's the same issue that Jesus is dealing with in Matthew 21. A crowd of people who see him a certain way, but haven't thought through the implications of the things that they believe. And what Jesus is forcing them to do through both his words and actions in Matthew 21 is to think through the implications of the identity that he has. Jesus is going to show us in just 20 some verses, three of the primary identities of the leaders of God. We know them as prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus is going to show us first what it looks like that Jesus is king, then Jesus as prophet, and then finally Jesus as priest. So Jesus is king, Jesus is prophet, and Jesus is priest. Listen as I read in Matthew 21, the first 22 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, the, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is God's word. So what's Jesus doing here? What's happening? Well, it begins with this odd um, narrative of Jesus sending two disciples ahead of him into the town. Now, um, scholars disagree. It could be a miracle of premonition. Jesus knows that there's going to be a donkey and a colt tied. He knows that somebody's going to ask them, and he knows what response will give them what they need to know. Or scholars think that Jesus set this up. I, I kind of like that one better. Like Jesus is kind of behind the scenes. We didn't get this recorded by Matthew, but he kind of set up the plan. And he's given them a code word. So when you go take the donkey, if they say something to you, give them the code word. So somebody comes up, hey, why are you taking my donkey? And they go, wink, wink, the Lord needs it. They're like, oh, that's the code word. All right, take it away. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but what we know is that Jesus set this up. Jesus put this in place. And there's all of these Old Testament overtones to what's happening. So Matthew records in verse 5 Zechariah's prophecy that says that the king will ride in on a donkey. But there's a variety of other things going on. King Solomon, when he came into Jerusalem, came in on a donkey, likely along this very same path. King Jehu, 2 Kings chapter 9, came in on a donkey with cloaks on the ground in front of him. Legend has it that King David, after Absalom's takeover of the kingdom, came back into Jerusalem on a donkey along the same path. Jesus is clearly setting up the crowd to see him as king. But what's fascinating is this is totally different than the Jesus we're used to, right? So in, throughout the Gospels, the, the demons would be expelled and they would say, you're the son of God. And he would say, shh, don't tell anybody, right? Uh, people would be healed and they would, they would exclaim that he must be the Lord, the Messiah. And he would say, shh, don't tell anybody. In fact, Mark chapter one, there's this real weird interchange. This guy's healed. He exclaims the identity of Jesus and Jesus in a way that's, that's almost angry in the original language. It's a very, uh, very confusing response. It says, don't tell anybody anything. And yet now, Jesus has set up his kingship. He's made it clear to everybody that he is stepping into the role of king. But he's doing it on a donkey, he doesn't look like a typical king. And so although the crowd is exclaiming Hosanna, which literally means Lord save us, they're, they're ascribing to him lordship. They're, they're saying that they want him to be the king. He, he's coming in in a very humble way. Frederick Dale Bruner, a, a scholar on the book of Matthew, he says this about his entry. Unable to deny that he is the promised Messiah, Jesus seeks to show his disciples and to the crowd the kind of Messiah he is. No man of war, but lowly and riding upon a donkey. See, if Jesus comes in to the Roman Empire and he comes as someone who is ascending to the monarchy, they know that if he's the king, there's certain things that are off the table, right? Like, where do you put your hope? Well, you don't put your hope in the warrior coming in on the donkey, right? Like, clop, 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 death to the Romans, right? Like, it's not, it doesn't make any sense. Like, this guy's not going to take over the, the massive Roman Empire. They, they can't be saying there, there's a political, uh, a political power play that's happening here. This guy's on a donkey, right? Jesus is saying, if I'm to be your king, 
your hope must be in me, not in a political process, not in a power structure, not in social injustice being corrected, not in wealth, not in comfort or authority. If I'm to be king, your hope must be in me alone. And a corollary is this. Now, hold on to your seats. This is tricky. If Jesus is king, that means you're not. And it means that I'm not. And I say that because I've had so many conversations just about daily over the last seven or eight months where people are very concerned about their own rights. And I think Jesus is just less concerned about that. I think he's saying, I'm actually in charge. I, I can handle this. But see, we're, we're so concerned about ourselves because like the crowd, we want Jesus to be king on our terms. We want Jesus to be king and do it our way, which by the way means that we're functionally the king. But Jesus is saying, no, if you're going to ascribe kingship to me, it must be based on who I actually am. And I'm a king on a donkey. I'm coming in in a totally different path with a totally different method of providing you hope. And then Matthew does this fascinating literary thing where he allows the crowd to introduce Jesus to us. So you see it in verse 10. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So now we've shifted from Jesus as king or king ascending to Jesus as prophet. And that introduces for us these two prophetic acts that Jesus does. And they need to be seen together. Uh, where we get messed up in our interpretation of these prophetic acts is when we see them separate. But the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree are always intended to go together. You see them throughout the scriptures placed that way so that we would see that one interpreting the other. So here's what happens. Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out all who are selling and buying in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den, a den of robbers. So Jesus has walked into the court of the Gentiles and he's seen all of this stuff happening. Now what's going on? We tend to be focused far too much on what's happening but I think the heart of Jesus is less about what's happening and more about where it's happening. Let, let me try to explain. Um, it, in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, historians tell us the typical population of Jerusalem would have been 30 to 50,000 people. But during the Passover celebration, that would swell to over 150,000 people. More than 100,000 people would come in from all of the region around to celebrate Passover there at the temple. As they come in, they need to come in ready to sacrifice. But just picture, if you're taking a several day journey from a city way over here, from the mountains way over here, it's tough to travel with your pigeons, right? Do you get that? Like it's hard to like carry your goat with you. You've already packed for a couple weeks. It's a little tricky to carry the goat along. So instead they carry what they can carry, which is money. So as they come in, their plan is to buy the sacrifice, but they've come in from the region around. They need to exchange one currency for another. So the issue here isn't that sacrifices are being sold. That's a necessity. 
The issue here isn't money being changed. That's a necessity. Were there probably some unjust practices that were happening here? Very possibly, but I don't think that was Jesus' point. What happened is that during the reign of Caiaphas as high priest, Caiaphas moved all of these sellers and money changers from the streets around the temple into the court of the Gentiles, this large outer court in the temple. And he did it for a very simple reason. There's a lot of money being made, and he figured if they came into the temple, he could get a cut. So they were taking a percentage of all that was happening in this commerce in the area of the court of the Gentiles. Okay, but here's the problem. The court of the Gentiles is the only place in the entire temple where a non-Jewish person can pray to the God of Israel. This is the only place. And now that place is being clogged up by all these people who are doing all of this activity. And now the connection that the nations have with the God of Israel has been forced out. And instead, the court of the Gentiles is made up of people who are buying and selling. What Jesus is forcing them to look at is not an ethical dilemma, and it's not institutional reform. It's a missional challenge. He's saying, you've lost your focus. Like, go back to Genesis chapter 12. When Abram was called, how was he called? God said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all nations. The heart of the God of Israel has always been for the nations to connect with him. But the leadership of the temple has pushed them out. Michael Wilkins, as he comments on this passage, says this, they are robbing God of the means by which his blessing extends to the nations. Now listen to this sentence. The temple's primary purpose is being lost in a frenzy of religious activity. Now think about the modern day local church. The primary purpose is being lost in a frenzy of religious activity. The critique of Jesus is not that the necessary things of the temple were happening. They needed to happen. The critique of Jesus was the necessary things of the temple had crowded out the vitally important mission of God. That they had gotten so concerned with doing stuff that they missed the heart of God. D.A. Carson, when he was commenting on this text, goes a little bit deeper into uh, the motivations of the temple leaders. He says this, the temple was meant to be a house of prayer, but they made it a nationalist stronghold. Matthew focuses attention more on spiritual neglect and mistaken political priorities than on the neglect of what the temple was really for. These are the things that Jesus denounces. This is what Carson's saying. The, the leadership of the temple had gotten so concerned with maximizing the blessing of Israel, they forgot why God was blessing them. The blessing of God has always been for the blessing of the nations. The blessing of God in our lives is always intended to flow through us to the world. But the temple leadership had forgotten. They had gotten so focused on their own people that they had crowded out the world around them. 
And so Jesus engages in a prophetic act. Uh, pr- prophetic, don't get tripped up by that word. It simply means uh, expressing the heart of God. A prophetic action is through action expressing the heart of God. A prophetic word is through voice expressing the heart of God. And so Jesus quotes for them from Jeremiah chapter 7. And he said, this has become a den of robbers. If you, if you have your Bibles, uh, stick your finger in Matthew 21 and turn to Jeremiah 7. I, I don't have time to read the whole passage for you, but I just want to show you where he's pulled this from and some of the context that's in there. Because Jesus, as he said it, assumed that his hearers would know the prophets and he w- they would know the context of what he was saying. And so in Jeremiah chapter 7, he begins this way. I'll start in verse 2. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word. Say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah goes on to challenge the Israelite people past their vision of the temple and the practice of the temple. Instead of saying, wow, isn't it great? We have this wonderful temple, but still living in a way that denies the existence of God, still living in a way that's an affront to the lordship of God. See, what he's saying is your practice isn't transformative. You're you're impressed with the temple and you're impressed with the stuff of the temple, but it's not changing you. And then Jeremiah says in verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jesus quotes Jeremiah to tell in a prophetic way all those who are listening that prophecy of Jeremiah, you're going through the motions, but your hearts aren't being changed. The temple itself is condemned in Jesus' actions. But then there's this really odd thing. He leaves and he goes back to Bethany and goes to bed. <laughs> like it, the, the narrative just ends right there. It's really bizarre. It's like, that's done. He goes back to Bethany, uh, likely to the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he spends the night. He gets up the next day and he's coming in. Now imagine he's coming down the Mount of Olives. So uh, through Bethany, he's coming down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. And as he comes up through the Kidron Valley, he's coming up to Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree. And he, he gets a little mid-morning hunger, right? He's like, I, I'd like a fig. You know, like you do when you see a fig tree. I'd like a fig. And so he goes over to the fig tree and he looks for the fig. And there's no fig. And he gets really mad And he says, never bear fruit again. And the tree withers up. Anybody else find this really bizarre? Like, this is such a weird story. Like, Matthew chapter 4, do you remember? I know it's like years ago. But Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes up out of the river. He's baptized, anointed by the Spirit, driven into the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness. Do you remember what he ate in the wilderness for 40 days? Nothing, right? He fasted for 40 days. Now, I don't know a ton about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but what I can tell from the scriptures is that if he was staying over at their house, he probably had a good breakfast. Passover week, Jewish boy probably didn't include bacon, but it had some kind of good stuff going on, right? There was some good stuff for breakfast. And then he left, and on the way into Jerusalem, he's a little hungry. He wants a mid-morning snack. He goes to find the fig. It's not there, and he 
curses the tree. This is Jesus' only destructive miracle, and it seems so out of character for him. Don't, don't you think the guy who can fast for 40 days can make it a couple hours to lunch? Like, are you serious? Like, what's going on here? But I think what's happening is that Jesus is continuing in his head through the book of Jeremiah. Go just one more chapter, if you're still in Jeremiah, to Jeremiah chapter 8. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Starting in verse 11. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This is a section where Jeremiah is critiquing the leadership of Israel. And so now Jesus, having already pronounced judgment on the temple and the systems of the temple, saying that they were empty systems and didn't have any power, he's now transitioned to the leadership of Israel. And he said, these leaders are like fruitless vines. They're trees with no fruit on them. And they also are condemned and the tree withers up. The heart of what Jesus the prophet is saying is where is the power in the life of the follower of God? Where's the power? Jesus as king was asking us where have we placed our hope? But Jesus as prophet is saying, where do you find power? And Jesus is saying, you're not finding power in the structure of the temple, and you're not finding power in a transference from the leaders of the temple. Those systems are condemned. Rather, the power is in him alone. Let me say it this way. The power in Christianity is in Christ. Without an encounter with Jesus, we have churchianity, which doesn't do any good. Right? It doesn't matter how connected you are to the system. If you're not encountering Jesus, the system doesn't help you. That's the heart of what Jesus was saying. Like, you're coming into the temple, and you see the grandiose temple. You see the sacrificial system. You see the high priests and all their robes and all the pomp and circumstance. But it's not actually changing you. We're people who are called to encounter Jesus, not a religious system. We're people who need to interact with him in order to receive his power because the structure, the system, doesn't give us any power at all. But do you notice Jesus doesn't answer their question? That's what's so bizarre. Like, the disciples then say, how'd this fig tree wither? Like, what's he doing, effectively? What's going on here? And Jesus' response is this, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So is Jesus teaching them about prayer? Is Jesus in some like backwards way trying to respond to their question? Let's take a step back. Jesus has come into Jerusalem during the festival of the unleavened bread prior to the feast of Passover. And he's come in as a king. But that king is not going to ascend to the monarchy. Rather, that king in just a couple days is going to say to the disciples, I'm the bread you're celebrating. 
I'm the lamb that will be slain. I'm the connect point between God and man. My kingship is distinctly different. N.T. Wright, as he talks about this uh, idea of Jesus coming in and the expectation of the Jewish people, says this. The story of Jesus' grand, though surprising, entry into Jerusalem then is an object lesson in the mismatch between our expectations and God's answer. The bad news is that the crowds are going to be disappointed. But the good news is that their disappointment, though cruel, is at the surface level. Deep down, Jesus' arrival at the great city is indeed the moment when salvation is dawning. The hosannas were justified, though not for the reason that they had supposed. They're looking for a king, but Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus comes in as a prophet, but he's not prophetically changing the system. Like imagine, this is the next day, he's walking in toward the temple, and what do you think is going on in the court of the Gentiles? Same thing as yesterday. The tables are set up, the money changers are doing their thing, they're selling sacrifices. Nothing's changed. In fact, not only has nothing changed that day, but in a couple of days, Jesus is going to be hung on a cross outside of town as a sign to anybody else who has any smart ideas about confronting the temple. Right? Like, the, the temple leadership is actually secured in this week, not crushed. Jesus' prophetic act is not changing the temple. So what's going on? Well, the words of Stanley Hauerwas help us get a kind of a focus. He says this, Jesus is the great high priest who has come to restore to Israel the right worship of Israel's God. That's what Jesus is doing. That's it. Jesus is coming in to restore proper worship. And so the disciples say, what happened to the fig tree? And Jesus says, if you continue to follow me, if you trust, if you believe in me, not only will you be able to do what happened to this fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What mountain? He says this mountain. He's being very specific. What mountain? Well, some scholars say the Mount of Olives, but if you follow him geographically, he's come down the Mount of Olives, back up the Kidron Valley, and the Mount of Olives is behind him. So it's certainly possible he turned, but what's natural right in front of him is another small mountain which contains the temple called the Temple Mount. And I think what Jesus is saying to the disciples would have been far more world-shattering to them. What he's saying is, this temple can be picked up and thrown into the sea. This mountain, it's no big deal. And the disciples would have been blown away by this, because this is central to all of Israel's culture. This is not just a place to worship. This is a place where Israel has their identity. This is the heart of what it means to be a Jewish person. And Jesus says, if you believe, that can be picked up and tossed into the sea. Why? Because Jesus' intent is not to be the great high priest in the old temple system. But Jesus intends to be the high priest in the new temple which is where Paul says it's you and me. 
that we are now the temple of God. See, what Jesus is saying is that space right ahead of you, that looks like sacred space. I know you think that's the building where you meet with God. But guess what? That's not sacred space. And by the way, neither is the sanctuary. It's not sacred space. This place, even though it doesn't have carpet on the walls anymore, still not sacred space. Guess what? When you're here, this becomes sacred space. Because the power of God is now in you. You are the temple of God. And in a little bit, you're going to get in your car and your car is going to be sacred space. And then you're going to go home and your home is going to be sacred space and your neighborhood is going to be sacred space. And you're going to go to work. You're going to go to class. You're going to go interact with people this week. And that's going to be sacred space because the sacred space is not about the setting, but it's about the presence of God and the presence of God is in you. So Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, that Christ in us is the hope of glory. It's the indwelling presence of God that gives us hope. And then this fascinating turn of a phrase just a chapter earlier where Peter says that you and I are a royal priesthood. So Jesus as the great high priest indwelling the temple now hands that priesthood over to you and I and says that you and I are now to become priests. So the system that's broken, that doesn't give you any hope. There's no power there. The, the leadership that's unfruitful, there's no power there. Where's the power? Where's the hope? In you. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. And now you and I have been called into the priesthood. Jesus has ordained us to go out into the world to be priests. What do priests do? Priests are the, the, the cross point, the intersection between God and man. The responsibility of the priest is to bear man before God and to bear God before man. And you and I are called into that holy activity. So what Jesus is doing as the great high priest is bringing the hope of the king and the power of the prophet into the heart of men and women that we would be sacred space, that we would be the temple of the Lord. So the question is, what do we do with that? Because we're going to go into a week that's a little crazy. I don't know if you're expecting that, but... I don't know what's going to happen this week. It's going to be a wild week. But I, I will tell you this, that the people of God are never to hope in the outcome of an election. The people of God are never to hope in a political system. The people of God are never to trust power that's a structure around them within a governmental system. The people of God are to be messengers of hope because God in us is the hope of glory. And so that means whatever happens, we're the people who have the answers. With one result or the other, roughly 50% of America is going to feel hopeless. Guess what? You have the answer. Because you are sacred space. Because God indwelling you can speak hope and power and life into a broken culture that has put their hope in the wrong place. And so the question for us is, how do we embody that hope? How, how do we best engage the heart of God? And that's what I want to encourage you into in the next couple days, to dig deep into the hope that you have, to answer the questions, 
Jesus as king asks us, where do we place our hope? Ask yourself the question, where's my hope? Jesus as prophet says, where do you see the power? Ask the question, where's the power in your life? And Jesus as priest says, where do you encounter God? And we're called to be the place where we encounter him and the world around us encounters him. So I want to pray over us that we would be people of peace, that we would be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world, that we would be a people who reflect glory to the world around us. And if you're hearing that and you're thinking, I just don't feel like I can get there, like I'm just not there right now, I would love to invite you to come and we'd love to just pray that over you. I know there's no altar rail here, and so I wouldn't suggest coming to the front, but both front corners on either side are great prayer places. And if you'd like to be prayed over, can I invite you to come to one of those two places? And we as pastors, our intercessors, elders, leaders would love to be able to pray over you. And so um, if you'd like to be prayed for, can I invite you to come up there? But let's together this week step into what's going to be a crazy week as people of peace bearing the presence of God.